0: Hello, I'm Maya Owens, and welcome to another episode of Sound Strategic. In today's episode, we're going to explore the topic of fragility, how to define it, how it affects politics, economics, and security, and most importantly, how to view it through the lenses of COVID-19 pandemic and geopolitics. And I am delighted to welcome onto the podcast two new colleagues at the IISS who are experts in this field, Dr. Benjamin Petrini and Dr. Umberto Profasio. Benjamin is a research fellow for Conflict Security and Development at the IISS America's office in Washington, DC. He conducts research on conflict, fragility, and international development, with a specific focus on Africa. His expertise and focus area spans from the drivers of armed conflict and instability at regional, country, and local levels, and the development responses and strategies to address conflict and insecurity, to global challenges like forced migration. Prior to joining the WWS, Benjamin was a full-time consultant with the World Bank for over ten years, and he has worked with the UN, several multilateral development banks, and the nonprofit sector. He holds a PhD in development studies from SOAS and MA in international relations and economics from Johns Hopkins Sciece, and a BA and MA in political science from the University of Rome in Italy. Umberto is the Associate Fellow for Conflict Security and Development at the IISS. He is a Maghreb Analyst at the NATO Defense College Foundation, and he has written extensively about the political security and terrorism in North Africa. He focuses specifically on the conflict in Libya, the politics and geopolitics of the Maghreb, and the role of non-state actors. Umberto holds a PhD in History of International Relations from the University of Rome, specializing on post-independence Libya. Welcome to the show, Benjamin and Umberto.
1: Hi, Maya. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Maya. It's a pleasure.
0: So, Benjamin, let's start with the definition of the term fragility itself. Where does this term fragility come from and what is a fragile country?
1: Well, I think it's it's good to start from there Maya because uh, there is some uh, min- misconception on what uh, uh, fragility is and what uh, what it stands for. There are some uh, some um, formal definitions. The OECD characterizes fragility as the combination of exposure to risk and insufficient coping capacity of the state, uh, systems and communities to manage those risks. So, it's a bit of a Convoluted definition. To unpack a bit of a a bit that, I would say that fragility is a characterization of specific challenges in the development and the security spheres that operates at multiple levels: uh, the economic, the societal, political, institutions, etc. Fragility can be at the central level, so it can threaten state collapse, or can be at the subnational level and hinder development in the periphery. So, originally, fragility characterized countries with low domestic capacity, poor economic performance, uh, uh, and possibly affected by conflict and violence. Most recently, or progressively, and even most, most recently, it moved to identify the whole spectrum of challenges affecting a polity. So all countries, in my opinion, experience their own fragility. We, we, we heard just this week uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in his first uh, foreign policy address uh, saying that U.S. democracy is fragile. So that is not uh, within the scope of what we're talking about, but it is it is within we we it really gives a, a, a very ample view of what fragility is. So we do not equate fragility with 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 armed conflict. Um the OECD and the World Bank have compiled for a long time list of fragile countries, fragile and conflict-affected countries, lists that are devised in order to allocate financial and administrative resources to tackle the most challenging countries to work in and do development in. So these are that that is primarily so why the label of fragility and fragile and conflict affected country uh, where, where it comes from so but just to to to, to make it a bit uh, uh, tight why why does this matter why is fragility a proxy for country instability armed conflict and sluggish economic growth so one i would say the obvious answer that is in that is that in today's world of independence, what happens in one country has reflection in others. So domestic instability is connected to the wider regional and global context. Second, because underlying dynamics of societal, political, economic nature, in terms of, for example, inequality, exclusion, divisions in society, um, these can be exacerbated in unpredictable ways. So let's let's, for example, consider the Arab Spring of ten years ago that, that Umberto knows a lot about, and he can he can jump in. Before 2011, many countries exhibited features of fragility, which were exacerbated for a number of reasons and turned into crisis, revolution, and war, depending on the on the country. So, because these factors of fragility expose countries' vulnerability to outsiders' influence and intervention, this also replicates sort of the new, uh, the, re- replicates a bit the, the, prox- the proxy wars. And so, there we can, we can return at a later stage um, on, on that point. But this is why I think fragility matters strategically, because what is relevant is that all fragile countries exhibit features that make them more vulnerable to shocks and more prone to domestic crisis with regional spillovers.
0: Umberto, can you talk a little bit about uh, your understanding of fragility in the Arab Spring movement that Benjamin just uh, referred to?
2: Yes. Uh, mm, uh, Benjamin raised a very very important point about the um, uh, relation between Uh, fragility uh, and uh, uh, what happened uh, in the Arab world uh, 10 years ago. So with the term of Arab Spring, we we tried to define uh, uh, the uh, uh, movement uh, of protests that uh, hit the region unexpectedly in uh, 2011. Uh, The relation with the uh, fragility concept uh, is uh, lays in the fact that uh, uh, this uh, wave of protests uh, highlighted the fragile situation of many countries in the region, uh, which were under um, uh, iron fist of uh, um, strongmen and uh, uh, dictators, and where the, uh, um, the, the, the civilian population uh, w- was trying to find a, a new uh, system of, uh, of governance. Uh, basically uh, more representative and uh, legitimate uh, institutions. Uh, This uh, uh, created Uh, uh, a a vacuum in certain countries, such as Libya, but also where uh, a civil war started. uh, And uh, I refer here to Syria and and Yemen, uh, which also highlights the fact that uh, even if the concept of fragility must not be associated entirely with uh, countries afflicted by by, uh, uh, civil war and armed conflict, uh, it's also an evident symptom uh, and a cause uh, of the fragility uh, of certain institutions. Uh, at the same time, this also uh, created uh, what we called as transitions uh, from uh, dictatorship to democracy, Uh, Most of them uh, can be defined as fragile transitions. Uh, We saw, for example, the uh, example of uh, Tunisia, uh, which is considered one of the most successful uh, um, revolution uh, during the uh, Arab uprisings of 2011. Uh, And uh, uh, most of the uh, commentators and uh, analysts say that uh, it succeeded In uh, achieving uh, a successful political transition, uh, creating uh, more democratic institutions uh, and uh, um, uh, um, and a democracy and a democratic system in the country. At the same time, uh, Tunisia was not able to achieve uh, a complete economic transition, and the protests last month highlighted the fact that. uh, the country uh, still needs to uh, find a new uh, governance system, uh, address uh, economic issues, uh, and also try to avoid uh, depolarization in the political system. This is a really important term, I think, when we talk about fragility, uh, because uh, depolarization in the Arab world between uh, rival political forces Uh, can be uh, secularist or uh, Islamist uh, on one side, uh, is uh, a driver uh, of uh, of fragility, uh, not only in this uh, fragile context, uh, but also in the Western democracy as we saw uh, in January uh, with uh, the events in Washington, D.C.
0: I think you both make some really interesting points about fragility, not just being limited to countries experiencing conflict or in the developing world or least developed world, um, but also um, something that we see very much, uh, or in some cases, something that we see in um, the developed world uh, as well. I also uh, would like to expand a little bit about the ways that fragility manifests itself outside of the realm of violence and armed conflict. Um, so for example, how it can be linked to things like environmental change and technological transfer. In the Aero Spring, of course, technological change um, played a significant role in some of these uprisings as well. Could you expand a little bit on that as well, please?
2: Okay. The, the fact that uh, we, we try to um, in the conflict security and development program, we are trying to approach fragility uh, as uh, in, a, in a multi-dimensional way. Uh, so, of course, uh, a conflict uh, is one of the major aspects that, that we are trying to focus on. Uh, but there are several layers uh, uh, which need to be uh, uh, understood uh, more uh, more properly. Uh, and I think, for example, that uh, the uh, recent uh, external shock, for example, of the uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic, uh, also highlighted the fact that uh, fragility uh, can also uh, have uh, an Economic uh, dimension, an economic aspect, uh, which uh, can also have a, an impact on the local population, uh, creating a new wave of protests. Uh, we talked about the first uh, wave of our spring in 2011, uh, but uh, recently we also saw a second wave in 2018, 2019. Uh, uh, in, uh, in Algeria, for example, uh, and here uh, I- I'd like to, to give uh, a, a number that uh, was uh, recently uh, made public about the uh, uh, dwindling uh, foreign exchange reserves of the country. Uh, yesterday or a couple of days ago, uh, the President uh, Abdelmajid Eboune uh, said that the foreign exchange reserves uh, of uh, Algeria uh, um, uh, decreased to 42 billion uh, US dollars. Uh, and uh, uh, this uh, is in stark contrast uh, with the fact that the country in 2013 had uh, 140, uh, 140 and uh, uh, billion US US dollars. Uh, this is uh, due to the fact uh, of uh, the uh, the plunge in the oil prices in recent years, but also uh, highlighted the, the risk uh, uh, to which Algeria is exposed uh, in uh, uh, the uh, uh, COVID nineteen pandemic economic conjuncture. Uh, and this is also related to the wave of protests in the country and the fact that uh, Algerian institutions. Uh, are trying to manage the transition uh, and respond to the protests Uh, for example taking measures such as uh, a new constitution uh, or dissolving the parliament uh, trying to uh, call for new general elections but these measures seem to be not enough uh, and this uh, gives an indication of the fragile situation of the country, especially due to the economic difficulties that uh, is going uh, through. Uh, and uh, the resumption of the protests this month of the Iraq uh, opposition movement uh, also uh, casts a shadow over the future prospects uh, of the uh, Algerian regime in trying to uh, manage uh, the transition.
0: Benjamin, do you want to add anything?
1: Yes, thank you. I think these uh, these examples, these practical applications that Umberto brought forward are really revealing of how we characterize uh, fragility uh, nowadays. And there is a strong correlation Between fragility as we defined it and stability at multiple levels. So, fragility affects country stability through several different and interrelated channels that mutually affect one another. So, what I'm going going to about to go through is a a list of all the different dimensions that OECD uh, defines. uh, Uh, formulates the economic, environmental, political, security and societal dimensions of fragility. So to describe that multidimensionality of, of, of fragility, um, and so none of these dimensions. What I want to say: none of these dimensions can be taken in isolation. It really it is the, the, the larger uh, in relationship between all these dimensions. So the first one is the one that that that, that you alluded to. Obviously, violence and armed conflict is the most uh, visible manifestation of of, armed, of, of fragility, and. Um, violence and armed conflict that, that 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 happen in a new landscape um Uh, today. There is a proliferation of non-state armed groups, Uh, there are remote uh, um, uh, issues of remote warfare uh, with new technology of fighting wars, conflicts are low intensity, are harder to solve, Uh, they are also pervasive in middle-income countries and not only low-income countries, so there is a whole spectrum of new challenges related to armed conflict. But fragility does not, does not stop there, as, as, as Umberto rightly said in, in the application and some of the examples related to North Africa. To me, first of all, um, is the nature of the political settlement is something that defines the level and the extent of fragility. So the extent to which groups in society adhere uh, to the rules of the game, meaning the established political settlement or political order in that specific country, affects the stability and the fragility of that country. So, for example, there are either peaceful transition of power or va- or violent struggles between elites in a, in a zero sum game so the way that that sort of we see the nature of that political settlement has some important ramifications on on fragility secondly I would say the governance gap and weak institutions. So, this the issue of poor capacity at all levels of government, local, subnational, regional, and national government is central to fragile states. And this has been really recognized by OECD, World Bank, and all the multilaterals as really the key to lift countries, countries to lift. Um, countries' capacity to improve their uh, economic management, to improve their uh, economic performance. Um, So effective and capable institutions are needed to, first of all, to peacefully manage conflict in society. Uh, Secondly, to provide the adequate services that meet the aspirations of society and reinforce the social contract and the legitimacy. And third, to raise the resources and implement the policies to advance the SDGs, for example, which is really on on, on the table today, and we can talk about that capability trap. Uh, The progress in institutions is too slow in order to enact uh, those broad-based socioeconomic reforms that will advance on, on, on the SDGs. Other other factors, poverty, obviously, and poverty in itself is another multidimensional issue. So the connection between poverty and fragility is, is very strong. We can see that, 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 that poverty features highly in all fragile countries. So we know that over three quarters of all extreme poor globally reside in, fra- in fragile countries, according to the World Bank. Um, poverty rates have increased in fragile countries, which is driven by a cluster of protracted fragile fragile countries. We also know that as as, as a result of COVID-19, poverty will be, um, there will be more poor in fragile countries than non-fragile countries as as a measure of of increase. Um, and also what you allude, alluded to, to, to environmental pressures and demographic pressures, which uh, uh, affect uh, the demographic pressures negatively affect the youth employment and their livelihoods, with obviously a cascade of effects um, as, as, as Umberto has mentioned, in, 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 North Africa, in North Africa during the Arab Spring and, and more recently uh, as well. The environmental pressures are, are, are known to all of us. Uh, the, the climatic changes, the natural disasters uh, cause changes in agricultural cycles, in the availability of natural resources, for example, on land erosions, all of which have negatively effects on livelihoods and, and on food security, and as a result, on country, on country stability. Um, lastly, the technological transformations and the rapid changes in society affects the state's fundamental ability to respond and in turn affect people's expectations and aspirations, which loops back in negatively affecting state um, state legitimacy.
0: Very comprehensive uh, overview of, of the different manifestations of fragility as, as, as you see them. Um, but of course, in the last year, we've had a, a lot of discussions about the COVID-19 pandemic, how that's affected countries. You already talked about how it um, might affect uh, fragile countries uh, and the poor in fragile countries more than in others. Um, But of course, also great power competition and geopolitical competition. How do these two elements really affect how we understand fragility? And would you say that we're now dawning on a new frontier of fragility?
1: I think so. Um, This is an excellent question, Maya, because... uh, what, what fragility policy has been for the last uh, uh, 15 or 20 years, it has been dominated by multilaterals, the conversation on fragility and on uh, fragility policy. Now, this is no longer the case. And as, as you hinted that we, we operate today in a new landscape. The first one is this global shock on COVID, ni- of, of COVID-19 this global shock on COVID, of, about COVID-19 that we are still uh, in, and that has a direct impact on fragility. So, the impact on, 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 on fragile countries, um, the World Bank estimates that fragile countries account for 23% of the global population but 43% of those expected to fall into extreme poverty due to COVID reside in those fragile countries that the World Bank identifies. So the toll on fragile countries, we know that it's going to be higher than non-fragile countries. So that, together with all the other impact that we know at the, that at the social, political, and economic level, uh, so let alone those, the impact on poverty is going to be, Uh, massive. The second factor that I think it really changes a bit the equation on fragility is the current phase of global disorder, um, if you will, that we we have experiencing now for uh, a few years, which is also changing the policies and the politics of, of fragility. So fragility, I would argue, that now can really be viewed through the prism of foreign policy and geopolitics for a number of reasons. So fragility becomes increasingly entangled with foreign policy interests of great powers and regional powers which resemble the Cold War-style proxy wars. More states vie for influence on the global stage A situation that renders fragile countries, given their weakness, prey to powers' competition and renders armed conflicts as as proxy wars. More and more states are exerting their influence in fragile countries, in countries with poor institutions, in countries with armed conflict. That is something that that, that can be... We can see the trends of third-party intervention into internal armed conflicts. So this is expanding, and it's opening a new phase of competition. So fragility becomes one more arena of competition in the current international disorder and in the geopolitical dynamics. Um, The global disorder negatively affects states' behaviors and predictability on the international arena. New and old actors reshape their role fragility and fragile countries. So the U.S., for example, that passed the, the, the Global Fragility Act uh, last year and has just embarked on a new strategy uh, on, on fragility. Uh, China, with all the um, Belt and Road Initiative and all its investments in infrastructure in many countries that are fragile, this is creating um, uh, this is created. These are not only anymore development interventions, but are, they're starting necessary to have a role in the fragility and in the development trajectory of, of of those countries, as well as the bilateral security arrangements that Russia, for example, uses in and has has been using in a number of countries. Now, these overall. Um, uh, th- as, as global order has undermined multilateralism, this process has negatively affected international institutions and their legitimacy. So related to fragility, this means that my la- my multilateral organizations like the World Bank don't no longer have the monopoly on fragility uh, policy, but there are more and more bilateral fragility policies. So this, I think, is the new... Uh, realm that we are we are living in, and and we should be considering fragility as part of that sort of strategic and geopolitical discourse on uh foreign policy
2: i think that we need to uh, change perspective uh, uh, i believe that we are uh, living in a moment in which there is uh, a change of paradigm uh, in which uh, right now for example we uh, are not talking about uh, uh, terrorism uh, a- anymore um, we we have referred to the to the post uh, uh, 2001 world uh, as the age of, of terrorism um, and the asymmetric threat uh, coming from uh, from terrorist organi- organizations and, and militants uh, uh, in uh, uh, worldwide, uh, and we are shifting towards uh, the great uh, power competitions uh, that we we mentioned before, uh, and uh, uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, is having a huge impact. Uh, on this uh, change in the, in the global order uh, in which we are seeing for example uh, referring to the covid-19 pandemic uh, uh, as the 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 battle between uh, several countries uh, uh, through the for example the vaccine diplomacy uh, china and russia for example uh, in in the middle east but also in in north africa at, at the same time uh, the the problem right now is that um, this change in, in in the global order uh, is also due to the fact uh, that uh, the Western world is gradually retreating uh, into uh, a, a nationalist solution uh, to, to the problems of the modern, modern world. Uh, and uh, this is due probably to the legacy uh, of the, the Trump uh, um, years uh, in which the former president uh, I believe that has pursued a, a muscular, Uh, isolationism uh, that is uh, creating uh, uh, is having reverberations uh, worldwide and in particular in in north africa and in uh, in the arab world Uh, i i for example um, can make a reference about the the fact that uh, uh, china and russia are trying to advance their their interests and their agendas in, in the region, uh, but we also saw the rise of regional powers uh, such as uh, Turkey uh, and the United Arab Emirates, uh, which has been uh, highlighted by the, the, the conflict in, in Libya. Uh, and this is another another dimension. Of the uh, the fragility uh, and the fact that, uh, um, for example, the the, the conflict uh, in Libya is, is causing uh, um, uh, is having an impact, uh, not only in terms uh, in in, uh, in terms of the local population and the fact that uh, we are seeing uh, a weak. Uh, weak state, weak, weak institutions, and, and the polarization between uh, the different uh, rival parties, but also uh, a rise in, in tribalism uh, and factionalism. Uh, and this brings back to the polarization issue uh, that is also uh, that is not only reflected in the local environment, uh, but also through these uh, regional fronts uh, that fight uh, each other. Uh, one that supported uh, in uh, the post-2013 after the military coup in Egypt the uh, um, what has been considered as counter-revolutionary fronts, uh, and the other which is more uh, Islamist-oriented and revolutionary. Uh, right now, the fact that we also saw last year the, the Abraham Accords, for example, uh, uh, I think that uh, is uh, indicating a change in these two fronts, Uh, which I believe that uh, are now a normalization front of countries uh, that uh, are normalizing ties with with Israel, and the revisionist fronts, uh, uh, which includes countries that are trying to change the regional order and supporting, for example, uh, uh, post-Islamist groups while also trying to uh, change uh, the geography uh, of the region and we saw this uh, um, this reflected uh, not only uh, in the libyan uh, conflict but also in the western sahara uh, where uh, uh, this is uh, there, there's been some major developments lately and uh, this brings us to the to the to the to another concept that is uh, uh, related to uh, the, uh, the fragility. And this is the, the frozen conflict uh, case uh, in which we have reached, for example, a ceasefire, but we have been unable to find a peace agreement. And uh, in, uh, in Western Sahara, uh, this is uh, uh, the case, uh, and uh, we can see how frozen conflicts uh, can uh, reignite uh, at any time. Uh, and at the same time, the fact that we have not been able, uh, in, in Libya, Uh, to find uh, a a common understanding uh, between uh, rival fronts uh, and the fact that, uh, for example, we have uh, several uh, foreign forces on the ground, uh, mercenaries and private military companies. Uh, The fact that the deadline passed and these forces are still on the ground, building trenches, for example, uh, between the east and the west of the country, uh, is also a serious indication that Libya can uh, transform into uh, a frozen conflict uh, in, the, in the coming months. And uh, uh, regarding the, the, the possible solution, for example, and I can make reference to the case of Libya, uh, one uh, um, possible solution to address this, this fragility uh, is also uh, um, uh, on the internal level uh, and is based uh, on uh, programs of uh, disarmament Uh, demobilization and reintegration programs. Uh, The fact that the the country uh, has has had uh, weak institutions and uh, has created a proliferation of militias and and armed groups, uh, and uh, one possible solution that needs to be seriously addressed by uh, any transitional authorities in the coming months needs to be to implement a security sector reform in the country, uh, trying to uh, establish new uh, legitimate institu- institutions with the, the monopoly of the use of force.
0: I mean, you mentioned the, the um, variety of also foreign actors in the Libyan case, and I, I guess that brings us to another question of how these actors in this geopolitical context understand uh, the concept of fragility, whether they have a common understanding of it or whether countries like the U.S., China and Russia have a different understanding of this concept, and thus might have different uh, policies at the end of the day, and different activities at the end of the day uh, within this context. Um, what do you think about that?
2: I believe that they have uh, different uh, concepts. Uh, there may have been uh, in in the in the in the past years. Uh, uh, some kind of convergence between these different uh, uh, ideas on, on fragility uh, by the different actors involved in the conflict in Libya. But uh, I still believe that the, the, the Western world uh, and, and uh, the US and, and Europe are still uh, uh, anchored to uh, a, a multilateral approach uh, to, uh, to the conflict uh, worldwide and to fragile solutions. What we saw in Libya in the third phase of the, the civil world uh, uh, from uh, 2019 to 2020 was, uh, um, I think, the, the, the resort to a kind of a power politics uh, where um, assertive countries uh, such as Turkey or Russia, for example, have tried to uh, impose uh, military presence uh, on the ground and this is uh, also affect uh, the civilian population um, i can give a few numbers here about the fact that uh, in libya right now according to uh, the united nations there could be uh, as much as 20000 uh, foreign fighters uh, this could be the, the Russian uh, Wagner, uh, Sudanese militias, uh, or Syrian mercenaries. Uh, and this uh, particularly important because uh, if we compare this number uh, with uh, one of the, the major uh, armed groups in, Li- in Libya, the Libyan National Army, as uh, about 25,000 uh, fighters. So this gives an indication of the number of fighters present in Libya and how this, the foreign forces can change the balance on the ground. Uh, on one side or or, or the other, uh, but also the fact that uh, we have uh, um, we are witnessing uh, uh, two two major trends uh, in, in modern warfare, and this is uh, the uh, privatization of war through the use of mercenaries and military uh, private military companies and the remote warfare with uh, the use of drones and uh, unmanned aerial uh, vehicles. Uh, in the case of the uh, private military companies, this has uh, a huge impact on, on the fragility. is creating more fragility in the country because uh, most of the times, these, these groups, they don't respect the international humanitarian law. Uh, for example uh, um, the uh, number of casualties uh, uh, caused by the uh, landmines uh, and uh, unexploded ordnance that were left by uh, uh, these groups uh, uh, in the southern tripoli area especially in aynzar and saladin uh, according to the uh, united nation office for the coordination of humanitarian affairs it's uh, 207 casualties uh, with 73 deaths and 100 uh, Thirty-three injuries, and this was uh, uh, mainly the the the, the work uh, of the uh, Russian Wagner group, which retreated from Tripoli, uh, but not before uh, having uh, uh, planted these landmines uh, and uh, unexploded ordnance uh, while uh, going uh, eastward. Uh, this is also having a, a huge impact on the on the issue of the the returnees. Uh, because uh, um, many displaced people uh, have been unable uh, to return to their, to their homes uh, due to the fact that uh, there are still difficulties in, in trying to clear uh, these areas of this, uh, of this ordinance. Uh, and uh, the number of uh, internally displaced persons, that is an indication of the fragility of the, of the state, uh, currently amounts to uh, 392,000 uh, people.
0: Benjamin, you've talked about these new trends in uh, fragility and um this broader definition of how we should think about fragility moving forward. Um, and also, of course, in terms of uh, increased number of actors who are becoming involved in fragility. Does this pose a opportunity um to uh, work more on fragility moving forward? Or do you think actually this is more of a destabilizing, Influence when we see countries uh, like China, the United States, and and Russia stepping in with their own uh, policies towards fragility?
1: I think uh, uh, what we're witnessing now at the moment is definitely an increased destabilization. And I would not expect that to change in the uh, short, uh, in the near term. However, uh, let's look at at the at the medium term or at the broader pictures, and what are some of the opportunities that we could uh, um, that we could conceive uh, in terms of, of of fragility. So the first one, what I would say is 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 uh, the opportunity to anchor fragility tighter to the quality of the political settlement. And when I say that, uh, I I mean to have a broader um, and shared understanding of addressing inclusion, addressing inequalities, uh, gender. So issues that make uh, countries um, stronger and more resilient to, uh, to, 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 to political and social upheaval. So that 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 I would say is an opportunity moving forward. The second one, which is being pursued uh, at the moment for the last three or four years, is to invest in prevention. In prevention through strengthening coordinated approaches between development actors, humanitarian actors, security actors, uh, diplomacy. So to have a a, a a sort of a broader coalition. To look at conflicts upstream, and as we defined all, as we defined earlier, all countries have fragile inflection points, and so it's really to look at those and strengthen those. That I think it's an area on, of, of, of opportunity of empowering national institutions, local governments, um, and 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 empowering um, uh, and giving more agency to uh, countries themselves. Um, And the third one, I would say, is to have um, what we could think is investing more in those global public goods where all actors can have an interest in cooperating. And obviously, I'm referring to uh, climate change. I'm referring to uh, transnational issues like migration, like refugees. And there we see opportunities in there, the Global Compact of Refugees and on the Global Compact on Migration of, of a few years back. So those are things that I think can can spearhead a, 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 a more uh more investments from the international community side and more a shared uh, understanding that can have an, a positive impact on fragility.
0: And do you think that that would be those suggestions that you made are ways that we could perhaps um counteract the um the negative impacts of the politicization of uh fragility within this uh context of great power competition whereby um working on fragility is, is, is seen as a, um, uh, a, a tool of statecraft perhaps
1: we need to work on different uh, on different levels right so we need the normative levels we need to put countries uh, uh, together in front of their responsibilities uh, uh, vis-a-vis uh, global public goods uh, for example or uh, and, and 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 obviously so that is one level the normative level um the political the strategic level of of countries at the moment, we are seeing uh, we are seeing an increased uh, polarization, um, as, as, as Umberto has, has described for uh, for different uh, for different reasons. So at the moment, the political space is uh, um, is is tighter for, uh, for 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 investing uh, on fragility. So I do not see uh, at the moment I do not see an opening uh, on the on the political front.
2: I'm uh, more more pessimistic uh, in this uh, um, compared to, to to what Benjamin has just said, uh, because I think that uh, um, this this change uh, that we are witnessing uh, and the COVID nineteen pandemic and the, the the fact that many countries are, are trying to find nationalist solutions to to a uh, common problem. Uh, and uh, uh, this, uh, this is also reflected in, in the fact that uh, um, we, we still see uh, fragile countries uh, uh, through a, 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 a lens that is mainly based on, on security. And, and here we can make the, the, the examples of the uh, Europe's uh, uh, policies of uh, uh, externalization in the managing of the uh, flow uh, of migrants. Uh, and I'm still uh, thinking about the fact that, for example, this is, a, 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 it's just, uh, this is having a huge impact, uh, not only on the countries of uh, destination, uh, and we saw uh, in the last couple of years uh, the shift in the uh, public opinion uh, in uh, in several european countries uh, towards uh, uh, far right uh, and populist uh, movements due to the increasing number uh, of migrants uh, arriving in uh, in europe but it's also having a huge impact also on uh, fragile states uh, and the transit countries as well such as libya Uh, where, according to to the latest estimates, there are about uh, uh, 600,000 migrants, uh, refugees uh, and asylum seekers. Uh, And some of these uh, are still held in squalid uh, condition uh, in in many detention centers uh, across uh, across the country. Uh, so this is uh, a, a, an approach that is short-sighted uh, and uh, reflects the fact that we, we we still we are still looking uh, um, at, at the common problem. Uh, through uh, a nationalist solution uh, and uh, some that is not uh, uh, probably right now uh, is not acceptable, especially uh, considering the fact that this creates uh, more uh, conditions uh, for fragility to continue in, in these countries. I think we need to just change the approach uh, and the fact that uh, the new U.S. administration uh, said that it's, it's looking uh, at the world through a new uh, multilateral approach compared to the previous years, uh, it's, it's a clear indication. Uh, but we still have to see uh, if uh, uh, the, uh, the facts uh, are, um, uh, the facts comes, uh, which, uh, w- what are the, the, the main consequences of these words.
0: Well, thank you both for coming on the show today. We've unfortunately run out of time, but we've covered a lot of ground, and I, I like your final comments, which are optimistic. But recall a need for a heavy dose of reality and realism uh, when when looking at the topic of fragility. Um, looking forward to seeing your future work at the WWS on this topic.
2: Thank you, Maya. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Maya. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the IWS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the IWS website. Thank you and see you next time.